all you beautiful body bastards and welcome back to body ballads where we look at many of the forgotten hilarious and often dirty old songs of the past along the way we'll explore all those things that make life just a bit more interesting there's trickery infidelity loving drinking fighting and while we dig into these songs we'll talk about all kinds of stuff archetypes, history, folklore, and share the way these songs connect with the present. A fair warning before we begin, this show does discuss adult themes and topics, including violence, sex, and my own foul mouth. And as always, make sure to check the show notes for links, including thebodyballads.com, where you can share your creations with me and see the show transcripts and additional links if you're curious to learn more. And with that said, let's get to today's episode. Welcome back, everyone, to Body Ballads. In today's episode, Dr. Do Good's Feel Good, or Addiction and Song. Now, musicians and drugs are nothing new. Just as addiction is always there, hidden in shadows and back alleys. And since I've unknowingly spent a fair amount of time talking about unwanted pregnancies, I thought this time I'd talk about something that kind of goes hand in hand with living in the streets. Addiction. Though, as a side note, one of the hardest I've ever laughed was at a late-night commercial for restless leg medicine that gave the warning that if you found yourself unable to control yourself and saw an increase in gambling, drug addiction, or risky sex, you should stop taking and consult your doctor. No, I don't remember the name of the drug, but I do remember rolling off the couch laughing because, you know... You may have lost the house and your wife to gambling and your coke addiction, but at least when you lay down in your cardboard box at night, your legs are nice and silent. Now, addiction is one more of those things that the average person and the culture at large likes to think about of, or likes to think of as a modern problem, something that came about with the supposed crumbling of society. But how many would be shocked to find out that Shakespeare himself was likely a user of both cannabis and cocaine? Now, to what extent, we don't know, but excavations in his known residences and analysis of pipes found in midden piles lend evidence that someone around him in the time was smoking them. This is supported by various references in his writing. Though really quick, because I just realized I used a term that you may not understand unless you're an archaeology history nerd like I am, which is midden pile. So a midden pile is basically an old trash heap that you find in archaeological excavations. And they are very exciting because they can tell us so much about people and how they lived because people do not think about common things that they throw away. But those common things that we throw away tell the most about our everyday lives. Midden piles. Fascinating. Anyways, side note aside, here's what I love about this little fact about Shakespeare. Shakespeare has been set up for so long as the epitome of culture and class. He's the highbrow poshy of the poshiest. Want to sound smart? Quote some Shakespeare. Yet anyone who's actually studied him knows he was merely a working class actor who also had a skill with a pen. I actually think that it was his working class background outside of the realm of the aristocracy that allowed him to be as creative with wordplay as he was. Now to clarify, when I say working class, that looked a bit different than today. 
Today, when we say working class, many think of blue collar and exclude the middle and upper middle classes, but class distinction in the early modern period was very different than it was today, or sorry, is today, verb usage. The aristocracy that had power in the early modern period, and as a reminder, we're talking, you know, broad strokes. We're talking about the late 1500s up into about early 1700s. Very broad kind of generalization. Not going to go too much into history there. Anyways, the aristocracy that had power in the early modern and enlightenment periods thought anyone who had to work at all was poor stock. Now, in my opinion, that type of classicist mentality is still at play in those theories that Shakespeare couldn't have possibly written Shakespeare because he wasn't university or tutor educated. He didn't travel the world, so how could he possibly write about far-off places so well? How could he capture somewhere like Venice if he'd never been there? The simple fact is, and any good writer will tell you this, quiet observation is a more powerful tool than many would realize. And Elizabethan England was a place ripe for inspiration. Between Marlowe and all his other cohorts spying for the queen and dying and the tales incoming from the new world, a good sit in a pub would give plenty of inspiration. Not to mention the constant religious strife of the world in the midst of massive change. Not only was there the battle of Protestant versus Catholic, but the upcoming Enlightenment saw new discoveries in science and empirical thinking. In addition to this, the language itself was changing over to a more modern language and things like standardized spelling are getting introduced. These moments of drastic social and cultural change are hard to live through and tumultuous AF. Something I think we can all probably relate to and why I thought, Meh, let's talk about drugs. Because sometimes when people get overwhelmed in the changes and uncertainties around them, they turn to anything that will take away just a bit of the pain. It's called self-medicating and it's at the root of almost all true addictions. For those of you unaware of how that works, imagine the worst toothache or bodily pain you've ever had and how you were desperate for even the slightest relief in pain. Now for me, it was a herniated disc in my lower spine when I was about 22 that had me practically bedridden for almost two months. Walking was torture and I was only able to do it with the assistance of crutches or a cane, but the movement from sitting to standing was the worst and I avoided it at all costs. It was also during this time that I realized I could not play around with opiates because unlike others, they gave me energy and made me feel real happy and real social. In short, they made me feel too good, like I could conquer the world. And I'd seen how the addiction started in so many around me. They'd get an injury and prescription and then still be with the pills long after. And that, that is the root reason behind the songs we're going to look at today. The kind of songs that warn of magic elixirs that save you from all your problems. Now, the first we'll look at is Dr. Duguid's Directions, which is from the middle of the 1600s. And this is the one that actually inspired this episode because it immediately made me think of Motley Crue's Dr. Feelgood. Because, of course, it did. Because I grew up in the 80s so and early 90s. So it was just everywhere. Anyways, I present to you 
Dr. Duguid's directions to cure many diseases, both in body and mind, lately written and set forth for the good of infected persons. If any are infected, give audience a while. Such physic I'll teach you shall make you smile. It is wholesome and toothsome and free from all guile, which shall breed good blood and bad humors exile. Although it may seem most strange, yet this is most true and strange. If any man be troubled with uncomely long hair, which on his fool's forehead unseemly doth stare, I have a medicine will cure him to prove it, I dare. Let him take a razor and shave his head bare, and he shall be cured. Most strange. Oh, this is a wonderful change. If any be troubled with an idle, drowsy head, whose chiefest delight is to sleep in his bed, with glutting his stomach, this folly first bred, let him fall to his work and be slenderly fed, and he shall be most cured, most strange. Oh, this is most true and strange. If any man be troubled with a shallow brain, whose giddy apprehension can no wisdom attain, if he be eased of this kind of pain, strong beer and hot waters, then let him refrain. And he shall be cured most strange. Oh, this is most true and strange. If any man be troubled with a fiery hot nose, which in midst of cold winter is as red as a rose, it proceeds from drinking old sack, I suppose. Small beer and fair water, let him drink. Let him drink none but those. And he shall be cured most strange. Oh, this is most true and most strange. If any man be troubled with outrageous teeth, which he eat up his riches and make him play the thief, if he will be cured of his kind grief, let him sew up his lips and he shall find release. Oh, this is a cure most strange. Oh, this is most true and most strange. If a woman be troubled with a tattling tongue, whose too much vain babbling her neighbors doth wrong, I judge for her mouth it's something too long, therefore she must cut short while she is young. And she shall be cured most strange, oh, this is most true and strange. If a man have light fingers that he cannot charm, which will pick men's pockets and do much like harm, he must be bled in a scarf, bare his arm, and drink the herb grace in a posset lukewarm, and he shall be cured. Most strange. Oh, this is most true and most strange. So, this song, unlike some of the others we'll look at in this one, where you have the just stop it mentality, Sorry, this song is one that you have the just stop it mentality that has long presided over not just drug addiction, but mental illness. And as someone who has panic attacks and panic disorder, the amount of times I've been told to just calm down makes my butthole clench. If quitting an addiction, whether theft or food or gambling or gossiping, opiates or meth, were as simple as just not doing it, there'd be no GD problem with their People with addictions tend to fall into two categories in my experience. Those who refuse to admit that they have any problem at all because, and those that realize that they do have a problem but need help to stop. Because again, addiction is usually self-treatment of some kind of underlying mental health issue, usually trauma. It's why so many addicts come from addicts and poverty and that cycle is one that takes immense amount of inner strength and sacrifice to pull yourself out of. As someone who grew up around addicts and has lost a handful of family, family members to it, I'll tell you now that pulling out of that cycle can take every last bit of energy you have. 
So when condescending people act as though quitting an addiction is simple as pulling yourself up by your bootstraps, it becomes just one more bucket of bullshit self-loathing piled onto an already full pile of mental bullshit that started the damn addiction process in the, in it, in the beginning. Now, I do think that the addiction song has become more popular, especially in the southern gothic genre, which, if you ask me, is where the real ballad tradition is being continued. That and bluegrass, of course. But the deep, sorrowful notes and tones of Southern Gothic and the newer songwriting that's happening there in these stories capture the stories of these people so much more deeply than much of modern bluegrass. Just one person's opinion, of course. Anyways, while these songs of addiction seem to be becoming more prevalent, they still aren't anything new. I think a good transition is seen in the new, in this song, Cod Liver Oil, that was originally written by Newfoundler, Newfoundler, Newfoundlander. God, that's hard to say. Also, go ahead and let me apologize to anybody in Newfoundland. Newfoundland. Anyways, Johnny Burker, Newfoundler. Uh, <laughs> I'm still just laughing. I'm sorry. I can't say that word. Anyways. He would later be, the song itself would later be covered by the Dubliners, which is where I heard, first heard it. I think it's really interesting because it begins to hint at something that most people kind of know about, and that's how many narcotics used to be present in what are sometimes called snake oil medicine. Coca-Cola started out as a medicinal drink of wine and cocaine, and I still wonder if cocaine still isn't in Diet Coke, because the way people get addicted to that is disturbing. Anyways, cod liver oil itself is like one of the first daily vitamins. It is packed full of stuff that's really good for you and it really is just cod liver oil. But I think this song is more about those snake oil medicines and let's be honest, I don't doubt there weren't some who realized slipping some kind of opiate or other narcotic into cod liver oil would mean more money for them as opposed to their competitors. All it takes is a few shady pharmacists back then or street peddlers and you get an addiction as depicted in the song. And with that, let's look at those lyrics of cod liver oil, which is from the late 19th or early 20th century. I'm a young man, married man and I'm tired of life. Ten years I've been wed to a pale sickly wife. She's nothing to do, only sit there and cry, praying and praying to God she would die. A friend of my own came to see me one day. He told me my wife, she was pining away. He afterwards told me that she would get strong if I get a bottle from Dr. Dear John. Oh, doctor, oh, doctor, oh, doctor, dear John, oh, your cod liver oil so pure and so strong. I'm afraid of my life, I'll go down in the soil if me wife don't stop drinking your cod liver oil. I bought her a bottle, well, just for to try, and the way that she drank it, you'd think she might die. I bought her another, it vanished the same, and then she got cod liver oil on the brain. I bought her another, she drank it, no doubt, and then she began to get terrible stout. And when she got stout, well, of course she got strong, and I became jealous of Dr. Dijon. My house, it resembles a great doctor's shop. It's covered in bottles from bottom to top. Well, early the morning the kettle does boil, you would swear it was singing of cod liver oil. 
Oh, doctor, oh, doctor, oh, doctor, dear John, your cod liver oil is so pure and so strong. I'm afraid of my life. I'll go down in the soil if me wife don't stop drinking. Oh, doctor, oh, doctor, oh, doctor, dear John, your cod liver oil is so pure and so strong. I'm afraid of my life. I'll go down in the soil if me wife don't stop drinking your cod liver oil. Now, I think the lines most telling in this are so pure and so strong, and I'm afraid of my life. I'll go down in the soil. So pure, so, blah, 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 so pure and so strong are words that are saying it's both concentrated and unadulterated. But cod liver, cod's liver oil barely would elicit the kind of addiction that would make a man fear he was going to die if his wife didn't stop drinking. I mean, unless it actually is just so strong of cod liver oil that she's turning into like super strong, like Valkyrie woman who's now beating her husband, which that is a whole nother topic that I will cover probably in a later episode of, you know, spousal abuse, both male and female. Anyways, in my mind, this song brings to mind the images of detox and withdrawal that can and will scare the shit out of anyone not prepared for it. And I think that's what those lines refer to. I'll die if, if she, you know, she doesn't stop drinking because he's stuck in this song. He can't not give it to her because if he doesn't give it to her, she goes crazy. And as the song indicates, she's not as frail and sickly as she used to be. So it's possible that, you know, there's probably, there's cod liver oil, which does like a vitamin. It gives you all kinds of stuff. It's really great. But if you add in some kind of other like addictive substance in there, you could, you kind of see where this is going. Someone in the grip of withdrawal is possible of almost anything. And it's definitely enough to make someone fear violence from their own wife or spouse. The lengths that someone will go to to stop the pain of withdrawal is one of the, I think, best captured by the artist Ian No, one of my new favorites, and his song Meth Head, which I think does an amazing job of capturing a sight many here in the American South have become really familiar with, and that's the meth rats, is what I call them. Um, and uh, some family members and I have started calling them meth rats after watching the behavior, um, which actually, if you've seen it, it can tend to start mimicking rat behavior in term nest. It's, it's odd. Anyways, so this is a good example, though, of how this ballad tradition is continuing on in a lot of the modern storytelling ballad writing tradition. So this again is Method by Ian Co. No. I saw him down in a dump, hurling armloads of junk into a pickup bound for the yard. He was skittish and strange like a wild dog with mange and there was blood where his veins ran hard. Wading deep through the grime, he found a long copper line and he jumped up and leaped to the ground. And you'd thought he'd struck gold the way he kicked and he rolled, and like a bandit, he tore out of town. Oh, now he's out on the prowl. You'd better get up and go back inside, because he's loose on the land, getting all that he can, and there won't be nowhere to hide. Yeah, he's crawling his way to fit to that fix for the day. You won't stop him. He's bent to be fed. He's the low heathen kind with a shit-mangled mind, the desperate fucking meth head. There was a girl tall and thin with scabbed yellow skin outside a rest stop I won't soon forget. 
She was digging at a rash, trying to deal for some cash, saying, baby, I'm clean and I'm wet. I just kept pacing by, swatting through the flies and her stench, rancid and stout, while she stood there crying please with her fists between her knees and the sores draining round her mouth. Oh, now she's out on the prowl. You better get up and go back inside because she's loose on the land, getting all that she can, and there won't be nowhere to hide. Yeah, she'll bum and she'll beg and she'll gnaw at your leg. You can't kill her, she's already dead. She's the empty-eyed soul, the zombie-like fool, the fiendin' fucking meth head. It'll be dark pretty soon. They love to lurk by the moon, so I'm out back shoveling the dirt. I'm gonna dig me a hole as deep as I can go, and when they fall, I'm gonna cover them up. Oh, now they're out on the prowl. You better get up and go back inside because they're sweeping the land, getting all that they can, and there won't be nowhere to hide. They've got the taste on their tongues. Their fates have been hung. It's a fever that's already spread from out far and wide. They're fit to be tied. The worthless fucking meth heads. Yeah, and that's, that's kind of where I want to leave you. Uh, that and the fact that uh, if anybody hears dogs in the background yapping and barking, uh, I feel like it kind of adds to this. And if, if I stopped recording, um, for the semi dog park that is in my backyard, I might not ever get any recording done. Of course, as always, check the show notes to links to listen to the last two songs yourself as well as links to additional readings on snake oil and cod liver oil. Um, most of all, though, I have you all, I would love for all of you to think about what your own addictions are and what you would do if that one thing were taken away from you. How do you act when you can't find your fun? More terrifying, how does a teen act when you take theirs away? Recently, there was a leaked video of a teacher being beaten by a student after trying to take up their phone per school policy. Now imagine if you were actually physically dependent on that thing, to the point that not having it made you physically sick. And I'm going to stop myself here and let that ruminate in your minds because this topic is so complicated and that was actually the first focus of my research mental health and addiction in valid literature. And I promise we'll be coming back to it sooner than later and probably multiple times because mental health and addiction are, I mean, they're so intricately linked. But until that time, stay saucy, my lovelies, and we will talk next time.